Okay, so you know, one of the things that I cherish most about this moment in our history is that it's ripe for conversation. And even though so many of the conversations we're having these days seems to be the same conversations we've been having for years and decades, there's something really powerful and inspiring and, dare I say, motivating about the opportunity to dive in from a different stage in our development or in our evolution. Hello, lovely people. It is Shara Carruthers here. I'm so happy to be back in your ears for another adventure in observing what it means to live our yoga. And you know, I've certainly noticed that we're not the same people we were when 2020 started, right? And our willingness to step into potentially uncomfortable conversations is definitely an acknowledgement of that. So our guest for this podcast is Michelle C. Johnson. She's a yoga teacher, a dismantling racism educator, and a clinical social worker. And I have to tell you, we were so happy to get her on the show. Both Maria and I had read her book, Skill in Action, which is a brilliant book, by the way. And we had lots of questions for Michelle about how to navigate the waters we find ourselves in at the moment. Michelle has been doing this work for more than 20 years, and... Ever since the murder of George Floyd, her phone has been ringing off the hook. And for good reason. Her knowledge of this subject is deep and her ease and power in breaking down challenging issues into simple invitations to know yourself and own your impact can only be described as yogic. You'll see. So this conversation with Michelle actually left us both incredibly inspired, motivated, and I got to say, a little bit uncomfortable, which Michelle would argue is a space we should all be willing to inhabit if we're serious about real change in the world. In fact, we had so many insights during this conversation that we decided to do something that we haven't done before, but that we might consider doing more of in the future. And I'll talk more about that on the other side. But before I give you over to our chat... I want to share one of my favorite quotes from Michelle's book, Skill in Action. She says, Racism is messy. Oppression is messy. Privilege is confusing and messy. Be willing to make a mess. Be willing to sit in the discomfort and the dissonance that so often arises when we're engaged in deep learning. Discomfort is the key to transformation. So thanks in advance for tuning in and maybe even for being willing to get a little bit uncomfortable as you dive into this conversation that we had with Michelle C. Johnson. you in this time of high demand about making time for us we're so grateful thank you yeah thanks for inviting me to be uh, yeah I will definitely second that you know I feel like um I for me personally I feel like this call is a long time in coming because the first time I heard you I even knew about you was um when I heard you interviewed on Jay Brown's podcast and the the feeling I had listening to you talk about, you know, all the different things that you guys were talking about was 
um, something that I have not felt in my life very often, which is this feeling of she she know she knows me. She like and it was because it felt like a lot of what you were talking about was my own personal experience. And just okay. being that person who has always been like um, not fit in. Like similar to what you've said, because I've now read your book and mm-hmm. all the rest of it. You know, I grew up in a very middle class neighborhood, was one of the only kind of white kid or excuse me, black kids in, a, you know, a very white environment and then have kind of carried that through my whole life. And um, and so, yeah, I, even back then, which I think was what, like a year and a bit ago when you were on Jay's show, I was like, I need to talk to her. I just want to I just want to speak to her and just talk to her about this, you know, my experience and the differences amongst black experiences and all the rest of it. So it's kind Mm -hmm. of a long way of starting. But I guess the first question that I kind of have for you is, um, is how are you holding this moment? Like this feels like a different moment. Like, how are you holding this? And how are you? How are you feeling about all of this? Yeah, so um, there's a lot happening in this moment, as you all know, and um, I've I've been saying on sev- in several interviews and just conversations and workshops that I've never lived through a pandemic, so that's mm. a new experience, a global <laughs> pandemic. Yeah, and um, the pandemic's happening as there's a global uprising calling for Black lives to be valued. Mm. That has never happened before either in my experience globally. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm holding this moment with um, some hope um, because I think there's potential for us to create different ways of being and, and there's a call for that to happen. And things are dismantling. Like I'm in the South, Confederate statues are coming down and policies mm-hmm. are shifting and it um, just rapidly too, although it's long overdue, but um, it feels like things are, are shifting. So I'm holding some hope. And I'm also, um, I say this all the time, holding heartbreak, because I I feel like we had all of the information that we needed to know prior to George Floyd being murdered. Mm. And obviously, he's not the only one that has been subject to police brutality. But that that was a pivotal moment, at least in the spiritual community, because I started getting all of these calls and book orders and Mm. people panicking about how to respond, um, given that they were seated within the spiritual community and yoga community. So there's there's hope and there's heartbreak about what is happening. And and I also am a bit concerned because I know that the intensity of the moment, we can't actually sustain Mm -hmm. that like. I can't do that in my body as an individual. My nervous system at some point is going to try to stabilize in some way. And um, that will happen through me resourcing myself um, emotionally and mentally and spiritually and, and physically and psychically. And I know that as a collective, white folks who are waking up right now can't actually sustain that either um, unless they have some practices to deal with the fatigue that will arise from sustained concentration mm-hmm. and um, focus on um, Black Lives Mattering and what is required of white folks to actually create that kind of culture where Black lives do matter. So that's a little bit about how I'm holding the. the wow. Moment. Wow. That's a lot. And so, 
is that a lot of the work that you're doing right now is providing or helping um I guess I, I know that you've been talking to a lot of white white folks to provide these exercises or some resources or whatever for for kind of all of us to you know get through this and to sustain and as much as we possibly can. Yeah, so I've been doing I've been leading dismantling racism work for over two decades and yeah. then been a yoga teacher for 11 years and the book Skill in Action came out in March of 2018 and um, I did a book tour. And so after the book tour, I was driving myself back across the country. I was in mm-hmm. the Pacific Northwest in Portland and drove back to North Carolina to um, live in North Carolina again. And um, my after that book tour, you know, yoga studios started contacting me to come in and do dismantling racism trainings or skill in action trainings, talking about the intersection of justice and yoga. Mm-hmm. And on May 25th, probably May 26th, the day after George Floyd was murdered, people, I mean, people who want dismantling racism training in their organizations, people in yoga studios have been reaching out a lot. And I've also been offering um, some healing spaces for black, indigenous and people of color too, Mm -hmm. because part of what it, because that's important um, and we need different space, I think Mm -hmm. to process what's going on. Um, And what's happening is given that like some white folks are waking up, white folks are signing up for my courses and they're selling out. And so what I'm doing is then I want to make sure we have a racially balanced group and, or at least BIPOC folks have access to my um, courses and offerings. And so I'm, I am offering um, a lot of um, free spots to BIPOC folks so that it can just be easy and accessible and balance out the group because I don't want there to be a group with one BIPOC person (laughs) in it. Um, And 45 white people. That's not what I'm trying to create. So yes, I'm working with a lot of white folks and I'm intentionally creating spaces um, for BIPOC folks. Do you think that, um, do you think that there's a different kind of waking up that's happening for BIPOC folks? Like for me, I mean, and the reason why I asked that question is because I, this whole experience has, has, has opened my eyes to a lot of stuff that I've been basically ignoring potentially. And so I wonder if that's something that you're, that you're seeing, you know, in, in all the different spaces that you're showing up in. Some, um, and I've held t- two um, affinity groups for black indigenous people of color. And in, um, the second affinity group offering, I explained what I meant by when I said BIPOC and I explained mm-hmm. the racial hierarchy because in the first affinity group, I think that it was hard for folks to center, even though black folks were in the space, to center on the black experience, mm-hmm. um, which is not unusual because, I mean, all of us BIPOC folks are trying to figure out like how to respond to the systemic racism. And also I think we need to hold the nuance that we're having a very different experience of racism based on the racial hierarchy, mm-hmm. which has hmm. black at the bottom as it was constructed here where I live in the, in the U S. Um, and um, I think that for folks who are not black, yes, I've seen some more awakening and, and, um, folks who are people of color and, and not black, I've seen awakening and just more awareness of anti-blackness. That's what I've seen. And I think 
you know, I've also, I mean, as we know, many white folks seem, seem to be waking up, but I think it's more the black folks I'm in community with are, are clear about what has been happening and what mm-hmm. continues to happen. And are, it's not an awakening. It's more a frustration of like what took so long. That's what I hear more of from black people. Mm. Yeah. Has that, do you think that's, that clarity has come from um, experiences that they've had or just, um, I don't know. It's, it, it's, it's weird. Like there's, there's, when I, even though my experience of, you know, has been different to the experiences of a lot of people that I've seen, you know, um, there's still some kind of a connection, if you know what I mean. So is that just something they're feeling or something that they've actually experienced? If you know what I mean. I think both. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, I don't, there isn't a moment where I'm not aware of my race. Yeah. And and being black is the most salient identity I embody because it's it's very visible to people that I'm black. Mm. Right. It's not and and you know, that means something in this culture. Mm. Um, and clearly is seen as a threat to white supremacy, um, as evidenced by the moment and what we're responding to right now mm. and the global uprising. Um so I think that I, I don't know if it's possible for um, a black indigenous or person of color to, to not be aware of their race if they're like connected and embodied. Mm. But I think that that's nuanced too, because there are people of color that are white passing, right. And having mm-hmm. a different experience than me, cause I'm not going to ever pass as white because I'm not white. Right. Like, yeah. so, so I think it, it has come through experience and systemic racism. And I also think I'm always getting messages from dominant culture about what it means to be black and I'm internalizing those messages and things manifest. So that feels embodied to me mm-hmm. and, and there are feelings connected to that. So I think it's both. I think it's a feeling, right? I also think ancestral trauma is connected to that, mm-hmm. right? It's like a deep feeling and experience and remembering. Yeah. And then racism continues to persist. Um, it's playing out in real time. So I think, yeah, it's both both feeling and, and um, from experience of systemic racism. Yeah. If, if I, is it uncomfortable for some black folks to, to talk about being black or are they, is it a relief? I mean, I think we're, we're not a monolith, right? We're having very different experiences. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think I've been in conversation with, black people where it's like, yes, we're talking about race because we're racialized and that's what we're living. Right. And everything is racialized and, and, um, talk to other black people where there's discomfort. And I think the context matters. Hmm. The moment, the moment matters. Um, yeah, like right now I'm leading a dismantling racism course. It just started last night through off the mat into the world and it's 200 and 25 people on this call wow. 20 25 between 25 and 30 were BIPOC folks um mm-hmm. black indigenous people of color mm-hmm. and so um I, w- I set up a space where uh, they were in breakouts because it's such a large group and I set yeah. up a space where 
I said to the BIPOC folks, you can stay in the main space with me for breakouts or you can go to another group, but you might be in an all white group. Mm-hmm. And I, I said that, and I'm sure I would have done that before, but the group size is just so big and that's different. Um, I did that because some people are comfortable talking about being black or about their race and some people are not. And I didn't want folks to be in a group with, with all white folks. And it's just them then centering their experience. And then the assumption is that we are a monolith, right? We're having the same experience and we're, mm-hmm. we're actually not. And so I think people's comfort level varies. Um, and I just want to set up spaces where people have agency about where they go and how they participate. Your explanation of BIPOC, I heard you on Shannon Crow, and I wonder just because we have an Australian audience as well, it was it was such an excellent explanation. Would you mind um, defining that again or explaining it? Because it was it was mind blowing to hear that hierarchy, particularly. Yeah to how you explained indigenous people, which is something very important in Australia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll say when I was a child, I didn't hear anybody say people of color. Mm. And I certainly didn't hear BIPOC, black indigenous people of color. And when I first started training, I think it was when I went to my first dismantling racism training, the trainers, they were using the term people of color and they explained people of color as not erasing our ethnicity or culture, but an acknowledgement that we are having a shared experience of systemic racism. And then about two years ago, or maybe a year and a half, I started to hear people, I started to see BIPOC and hear people use that language. Mm-hmm. And I'd known about the hierarchy. And so it made sense to me that, okay, we're using this language and we're actually speaking directly to this racial hierarchy. And so race was constructed and made up. Um, and I always say it has real power, obviously, yeah. defines how we move through our, our lives and navigate space and the world. And um, it is embodied too as an experience, it affects the body. Um, and that's true for white people and black indigenous and people of color. And so when race was constructed, it was constructed by white people. Um, and there's a whole history of the race construct um, that people can connect with. There are many resources for that, but there's a website, dismantlingracism.org, that people can go to mm-hmm. and just see the timeline of how power was built and how race was constructed and how race changed over time, which is one indication that we know it was, it was constructed. So the hierarchy was constructed with white at the top, um, black at the bottom, and other people of color moving between the two fixed points of black and white. Indigenous people weren't represented on the hierarchy because of forced assimilation, attempted annihilation of indigenous people here, colonization, right? Mm -hmm. And um, what has resulted from that, from indigenous people not being represented on the hierarchy as race was constructed, is that in certain parts of of the US, and I grew up in Virginia, um, I learned and I knew this wasn't true, but the history book was telling me that indigenous people were extinct and the history teacher was telling me that too, even though I knew that didn't match like the experience I was having with peers that were indigenous, but that mm-hmm. was the, the like teaching. And, and I lived in the Pacific Northwest for a year and that was not the teaching, right? Like that was not the learning that people got. So it can shift based on the region where you are, where you're located, your context. Um, But that has led to, I think, making Indigenous people invisible a lot of the time, especially when we're talking about race. I think Mm -hmm. in general and when we're talking about race, um, 
And then the last thing about the hierarchy is that other people of color, so there's white, black, indigenous people are not represented. Other folks of color are moving between those two fixed points. There's bookends to the hierarchy and they're moving between those two points based on what is happening in culture. And so the example I've been giving is recently is um, that the moment um, when Trump talked about COVID and talked about China, mm -hmm. hate crimes all over the world went up against Asian people. Like that is how culture in a moment will shift because it, Asian folks are certainly were closer to white than, than to black, right? Before that moment. Mm -hmm. And that moment shifted and then we have hate crimes happening, right? And, and often there are policies put into place too to support the cultural norm that is being created, the negative cultural norm about the whole group, the group of people. 9-11 mm. is another example of that. Yeah, I was thinking that. Right? And so, and those are just two examples, but that's, it's helpful because sometimes people don't know what I mean when I say culture shifts that. That is how culture will shift where people are placed on the hierarchy um, other than black, white, and indigenous. Folks. So that's the racial hierarchy. And that's why people are saying now black indigenous people of color to acknowledge that black people were at the bottom and not seen as human at all and enslaved, right? Mm -hmm. Seen as bodies and exploited and seen as labor. That's a very different experience um, than someone who is closer to white, right? Even though both of us were experiencing racism mm -hmm. and indigenous people have had a very different experience than I have as a black person because of the hierarchy. Um, because I'm not, I'm made invisible at times, but not in the same way. Like there isn't a narrative that my culture is dead or that I'm extinct, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's an acknowledgement that there are black folks having this experience, indigenous people and people of color. And we want to name all of those groups um, just to honor that we're have diff having different experiences of the culture when it comes to white supremacy and race. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah wow. Um, I think it feels to me like a lot of people are kind of even just waking up to the concept of social justice. And I want I wondered, especially because I know that there's a lot of people that are going to be listening that are really new to all of this. If you could just talk a little bit about so what social justice actually is and what the goals of social justice are. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big, a big question. <laughs> yeah. Um, and well, the essence yoga, maybe, I guess, because we're yogis, yoginis. I, I, I don't know if you want to make it more specific, Shara, but yeah. Um, you don't. Never mind. No, I'll I mean, just... I, can, it's, I can answer both. Okay. No? Yeah? I can answer both. Okay, I can go. answer in general. Terrific. So, and then apply it to yoga. So, um, I mean, social justice for me comes out of an acknowledgement of injustice and what is true, like what is actually happening and the the ways in which we didn't start on a level playing field, even mm -hmm. though the cultural narrative is that we did um, and that upholds systems of superiority mm -hmm. and, and blames people who are then not at the same place as folks who started way ahead with a lot of privilege. Mm -hmm. And so I think justice um, and social justice responds to the social issues that um, we are um, wading through in response to not starting on a level playing field. Mm. There is a lot more I could say about it, but that's yeah. the sort of essence of like, and, and there are all these systems like racism, like sexism, like heterosexism, like ageism, ableism, any ism 
um, or any system of supremacy, they're all interconnected. And so there are social justice causes that are connected to all of those different issues mm -hmm. that are trying to respond to inequity and injustice. And I, injustice to me feels connected to oppression as well, mm -hmm. which is like the subjugation of a person or group of people based on an identity they embody that's seen as inferior. And it affects people not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and psychically. And what is in relationship to that is privilege. So folks who are assigned privilege, like I'm able-bodied, I'm assigned privilege because of that. And I don't have to necessarily, although I do, because I have a mother who has a disability, I don't have to think about people who are living with disabilities, right? If I don't want to, and I can navigate space physically in a very different way than, for example, my mom who has a physical disability. So mm -hmm. I feel like, um, you know, justice is... is um, being in integrity, right, and being aligned with our values and our humanity and remembering who we are, our true nature, connected mm -hmm. to yoga, um, and understanding this relation of this relationship between privilege and oppression and, and how that creates injustice. Like assigning certain groups privilege means that a group is being oppressed, and that means there's going to be a system that isn't equitable. Like, mm -hmm. and and that's what I how I think about it. And then I think with with yoga, um, I mean, it's it's similar, right? Yoga as a as an industry is connected to the industry of wellness, mm -hmm. is a practice that is for everyone and a healing practice, but is in is housed within an industry that capitalism and all of the other isms intersect with, and that means that many um, yoga spaces have been exclusive and have not actually um, thought to create spaces uh, focused on liberation for people that have been marginalized mm. by culture because of injustice, right? Because of inequity. And the other thing I've seen happen in, in many yoga spaces, although I think the culture is shifting and I think people are demanding that, like, I think people are saying this needs to change mm. and, and acknowledging some people were set up to be well and others were not. Some people were set up to suffer. We're all suffering, but suffer. And some people were not right because mm. of so I, what I've seen is an avoidance and a lot of spiritual bypassing mm. so an avoidance of like talking about injustice because that's going to make people feel uncomfortable. Well, we're talking about people who have privilege feeling uncomfortable <laughs> and, and we're not actually, and I'm not saying y'all, but thinking about the people that can't even get into the yoga space or studio or have access to the practice who are feeling uncomfortable because they don't have access to this healing practice. And that's what needs to be centered. And I, again, I think the cultures of wellness is beginning to shift. Um, I feel that, and there are more, a lot of teachers now talking about um, injustice and justice and what our responsibility is as, as um, yoga practitioners um, and people who study yoga. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about this idea of spiritual bypassing, because I think it's, it's, become a term that means a lot of things and but I don't think a lot of people are connecting with it in part because and this was something that Maria and I kind of talked a little bit about before we jumped on it feels like what once you learn something you can't unlearn it and it means that there's a responsibility there for you now mm -hmm. and so it feels to me like there's a lot of questions that are not being asked right now because people are like 
the minute I open that kettle of fish, it means I'm going to have to change something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder, can we just talk a little bit about actually what spiritual bypassing is, just so that anyone listening kind of will have a sense for what we're talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so spiritual bypassing is a term that was coined by John Wellwood, who um, is a psychologist, and John Wellwood defined it as when people would become addicted to their spiritual practice as a way of avoiding what needed to be healed, right? Avoiding what needed to be healed, avoiding wounds that needed attention, avoiding developmental needs. And that's how he talked about, um, or how he talks about spiritual bypassing. And um, when I heard that, and I've said this in several interviews, I just thought about like, oh, culture, like we haven't reckoned with what we need to reckon with. So we're not healing. Like that's Mm -hmm. where my mind went first. Mm -hmm. And then I thought about it within the context of yoga spaces and spiritual communities and thought, well, we're, we're showing up for our practice or something we're calling a practice. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and we're showing up like every day practicing or we're, or we're in our home practicing every day or we're reading the sutras and studying every day. Um, and are we doing that? Um, and, and are we able to then talk about what is really happening and the application of what we're studying or are we studying this and becoming addicted um, and doing it in a very individual way, like thinking, I'm just about my transformation. I'm not actually connected to other people. Mm-hmm. Are we are we engaged in the spiritual practice to feel comfortable, to feel good, to escape from what is actually happening? And so I think that's how spiritual bypassing, it's one way it shows up in spiritual spaces is to invite people to escape from culture when there's no way to escape from that because culture is inside the room, right? Like it's, it's, there's no separation, which I always say, and yoga tells us this, yeah. And when spiritual bypassing is happening, we're acting like there is some separation. Um, and the, the other, there are many ways that spiritual bypassing shows up through some of the teachings and just how the teachings are expressed. And the one I always talk about is we are one, which is an absolute truth. I always say that's an absolute truth. It is. And yet we can see very clearly that is not how we live. That is not how we relate that is not how structures have been set up to, to remind us of our humanity and our oneness. Like mm-hmm. that is not, but I've been in many yoga spaces where that um, belief, that absolute truth is expressed without any action behind it. So mm-hmm. what are we doing to create um, systems and um, spaces where we can practice being as one? Like how are we advocating to change policies that will allow us to have the same access to things, right? And yeah. decrease barriers. Um, and there are many, like, you know, we're all, this, this statement is not untrue. We're all humans is not untrue. And yet when I've heard that in, in spiritual spaces, I'm like, why is that being centered now? It's a way of avoiding like how humanity is taken away from people. Mm. It's like a spiritual bypassing for folks can, I think it can make people who have privilege feel comfortable. Um, Mm. and often there's a lack of awareness of privilege, but feel like comfortable because what you said when you asked this question is when people learn and see what is really going on, they understand they're implicated. And when, when in my experience, I understand I'm implicated, then I'm called to do something in response Mm -hmm. and I can't act like I don't know. Mm -hmm. And bypassing makes people like act like they don't know. Um, Because I think people, I think people are learning that is true. And I also think people have gotten away with not knowing. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was interesting to see in some of the conversation spaces in the past few weeks where people would bring up what's going on and then people would say, well, we're, you know, we're not really political in this space mm. and they'd want to shut it off and just keep it on the subject. And it was a fascinating struggle where it was like, no, you know, everything is related. You mm. can't get stuff out. You know, we don't need yeah. to argue about particular politicians or something, but these, these issues are there. Yeah. Well, and the body's political. Yes. Like, yes. Because we have identities that culture has created and cultures created narratives about who we are and narratives that may be very different than the narratives we have about who we are. And that is deeply political because then norms are wrapped around that and policies that determine how we live our lives. And, you know, I, I think I think. I did not watch the video of George Floyd being murdered, but I mm. saw an image by accident. I didn't mean to see an image. It popped up. Mm. And if, if that's not political, the image of the officer with his knee mm. on George Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes, I don't know what is, the body is political, mm. right? Like he was, cool. he was taking out a body, a soul, a spirit, a person. And that to me I saw it and was like, we don't need to do dismantling racism training. We need to show this image. Like, this is white supremacy. He's being uplifted as he is killing somebody, oppressing someone. And so I just feel like that is so political because we're in bodies. They were in two bodies and one was being elevated and the other one was being extinguished, taken out. And, you know, when people in yoga spaces say we, we don't want to talk about politics, they they're basically saying we don't want to talk about what is real. Like mm. we don't want to talk about how we navigate space differently because of the identities we embody. And yoga really invites us to witness, to notice patterns, to notice our conditioning, to be with in the current context, what is real, right? As we might hold that, you know, yes, I'm black. That is not all of who I am. I'm a spirit. I'm a soul. I can hold that, but like I'm in a black body and that means something. Um, and for white supremacy, it means like, as I said earlier, I'm a threat. And to mm. me, it means something totally different. I'm resilient, right? And I have deep ancestral resilience moving through me. But again, that's the difference in the narrative that the culture's created about who I am um, versus what I believe about who I am. Mm. Mm. We had a, um, a wonderful educator, Leela Stewart, on, and one of her teachers, Judith Coltai, has this quote. And I wanted to read it to you and see what you thought of it, because... It's, she said, teaching people to be in their bodies is a radical political act because people who are embodied cannot be controlled. And I, I love that first part of it, but and, and I didn't think about it until all this stuff happened, but I'm not sure even if you're embodied, you could probably still be controlled. What do you think? I think that, I think we have a good examples of people who were likely embodied and were controlled. Like mm -hmm. that is what the, that is what like the attempted um, genocide and, and um, attempted annihilation of, of indigenous people here is about. Like, are we saying they weren't embodied when colonization was happening? Mm -hmm. Are we yes. saying like people who were enslaved in bodies and brought here forcibly brought to the, this, what is the US, right? Are we, even the colonization happened in lots of spaces. Are we saying they weren't embodied? Hmm. Um, but I get the essence of it. And then suddenly it's this moment is like, actually, um, yeah. that might be a really white privileged thing to think. It's not that mm -hmm. there's anything wrong with it. I love the idea of teaching people to be in their bodies. And I think that it's an essential beginning. But the idea that you can't be controlled might be a privileged 
position or um yeah and it also i don't know the context right like and what i think of because we were talking about spiritual bypassing is that it's like mm-hmm. what does it mean from my positionality to say when i have several privileged identities what does it mean for me to say something about a person that is being marginalized in so many ways because of oppression and because of systems of superiority to say like they can transcend this experience of the culture. That's what Mm -hmm. that is saying in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. we can't, and that's the part that, again, I, I don't know the context and I'm not judging the the quote. I'm just saying like, that is my reaction to it, that we're in bodies moving on the planet and, and we know there's a whole history of exploiting bodies and using bodies and um, killing, right. Murdering bodies, taking people out, um, when they have been seen as a threat to the systems of superiority. So we have a whole history that, that shows us how bodies have been controlled. So we need to, to teach people to be in their bodies, but we also need to dismantle racism or we, like, what else do we need to do? I think being embodied is really important um, as a way of like, not transcending the body, but deepening into the body and not only the physical body, but the spiritual and emotional and mental and psychic body, right? Like all of those different bodies and parts of who we are. And people may have other terms to describe who they are, the different mm-hmm. parts. I think that's why we, we become embodied because then I think we can, we can notice a few things. We can notice when we are misaligned, right? Mm-hmm. When something does not feel aligned with our values, when we're not in integrity, when something feels off. And if we're doing that individually, we can notice how that's happening in the collective. Mm-hmm. That's what I believe about this embodiment. I think we can, embodiment can allow people to understand their patterns and begin to understand the ways in which they've been conditioned by dominant culture and then begin to like consider how do I want to learn new things. Right. And that might happen through the physical body, but the physical body is connected to all the other parts of who we we are. Right. We're not just physical bodies. And I think being embodied because I know, for example, white supremacy has cut people off from their bodies. Therefore, then they're they're perpetuating white supremacy without actually noticing that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. And people are dying because of that. So being embodied um, and being, you know, practicing mindfulness and like coming back to who we truly are, I think can, is one of the antidotes to white supremacy, right? That we can dismantle systems um, once we are embodied and notice where we're positioned, right? And how we're positioned based on our identities and then which we call social location most of the time, our identities. And then we can figure out how we want to respond and what it actually means to be in a body in humanity and then to see other people and see them in their humanity. Like that is to me is the value of embodiment. We can Mm -hmm. actually feel what we are doing um, and we can feel what we are doing to other people and what we're doing to the planet, right? We can feel how we're affecting all sentient beings and energies on the planet. Mm -hmm. Wow, this is so opening my eyes about what's available to us as yogis and yoga teachers and all the rest of it. One of the... um, I love a lot of the exercises in the book. I think it's fantastic. We're, I definitely feel like everyone should read this book. Um, but w- what I was noticing as I was going through them was how they were making me feel. 
and thinking about, okay, well, why is this important? Like, I know the feeling, but why is this important? And what we just touched on was really touched me was this exercise about looking at all of your different identities and the privilege and oppression associated with each. That was huge for me because it feels like you can um, you can choose to ignore certain aspects of who you are because other aspects there are privileged, perhaps. And so you just live in this privilege and you forget about this oppression over here. And so maybe I mean, you've talked a little bit about that already, but can you maybe just talk a little bit about why that's really important for people to do? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll talk some about social location. And I, I just wanted to say the exercises in the book, you know, a lot of times people come to me and they want like the intervention and the fix for their yoga space and the, and I designed those meditations like in the way I did on purpose, right? Yeah. It was like, you have to feel something to <laughs> transform how you are. Like I can give you a list, but that's not going to change how you feel. And so I just <laughs> wanted to always like say that they're tools, like those meditations are tools for transformation, yeah. but you know, people want the quick thing and want the list and to do it right. And I'm like, no, you can, you can practice those meditations for the rest of your life and you'll be learning and feeling and transforming. Yeah. So I wanted to name that. Mm. Um, yeah. But understanding you're talking about the activity that is about your unique positioning based on the identities you embody and I mentioned the term social location, which is a term that's really about our social group membership, the identities we embody, um, and, and where we're positioned based on what dominant culture says about the identities we embody. Mm-hmm. And context will shift our location. And so, um, for example, I'm black, which puts me, um, I have less proximity to power because of that. Mm. I am able-bodied. I have closer proximity to power. I'm heterosexual. I have closer proximity to power. I'm a woman, but I'm cisgender. So I have, I'm not as close to power, right. Mm. Um, as a, a male who's cisgender, right. But so I'm a little further away from power, but I'm not, um, as removed from power as someone who is non-binary or trans. Mm-hmm. Like, so, so there's a tool that we use. I'm saying we, because I work with, um, several colleagues and one I work with with this group called Race and Resilience and we always bring in this tool for social location and um, I think the importance of understanding our location and the identities and the activity in the book calls us into thinking about okay we have agency we're positioned in a particular way what can we do based on our positionality Mm. So it is about the reflection of how am I experiencing oppression and, and where am I assigned privilege and what does it feel like? Mm-hmm. And then what can I do based on where I am? Um, and I think that is the value of this tool of social location and that that exercise in the book. Um, and to recognize we're intersectional beings. So mm-hmm. I'm like black and able-bodied at the same time and I'm mm-hmm. a sister woman at the same time and all of that's happening. And, and based on the moment, like this moment, I mean, blackness is being highlighted in a way that it hasn't. As I said, globally, there's a whole uprising that has never happened before. Mm. At least in my lifetime, it hasn't happened. So mm. not in this way. Um, and so that's highlighting blackness, right? Um, the Women's March, which I didn't participate in, highlighted the patriarchy and sexism. So the mm-hmm. context is going to shift um, our positionality and and what is being called for as, as far as um, our proximity to power or how we balance out power, right. And how we reallocate resources and, 
how we actually create this this culture where black lives can be valued or any group that is marginalized can be valued and centered. Wow. Yeah, I uh, I feel like I mean I'm ju- I'm just thinking about some conversations that I've had with um groups of it's really interesting actually conversations that I've had with groups of white yoga teachers and how unprepared I have felt like one thing I've certainly seen and I don't know if you've heard this from other you know BIPOC people at this moment all of a sudden we're the experts now on what you know on how to do how to deal with this and what to you know and what to do or we're the spokespeople now and in some ways there's this feeling for me of it's kind of reckoning with how I've lived as a, you know, as a person of color and what I've um, acknowledged and all the rest of it. But then in other ways, I just feel really woefully unprepared to and scared, to be perfectly honest, to um, to kind of speak for my race. If you I don't know, race is kind of a weird word to use here, but to sp- and, and so I wonder, like, have you have you spoken to other um, people of color who are having a similar experience and is there any advice that you can kind of give us for how to hold all of this? Yeah, I'm glad you're at, you asked this question because I think it's complicated because we haven't been centered, mm-hmm. right? And, and um, our voices need to be centered. And so mm-hmm. that's some of what is happening and, and we're being positioned, as you said, as experts but we're only experts of our experience, right? Exactly. But there's an assumption that we're answering for all BIPOC people or people mm-hmm. of color, and that can't actually happen, or all Black people. Like, that, that is not... I know about Blackness because I understand the culture, but I can't speak for every Black person, right? Mm-hmm. Those are two different things. And so I would say, um, you know, we have different roles. And... I am an educator, right? Like I'm an anti-racism trainer. This is what I do. I've been mm. doing it for a long time. Um, I, I am an expert in my field in mm. anti-racism work, right? And so I, I, have, I have positioned myself in, in that way without knowing this moment was going to happen, right? And But moments like this have happened before. I just didn't know this awakening, the level of awakening that's happening would, would happen. Um, I didn't believe it would. Mm or that I would see it in my lifetime, that's more accurate. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I am often paid to do my work, right? And, and that feels different than every white person I know reaching out to me to ask me what to do in this moment. Mm-hmm. My response has been, you can book a consultation. You know, it's like, <laughs> you can pay me to tell you about the thing that I yeah. do, right? And how you might want to respond Mm -hmm. because there's a whole history of, of like free labor, right. I've given away so many resources have been mined, right. For so many resources and knowledge. Yeah. And I'm just unwilling to do that at this point in time. It's like, Mm -hmm. I'm done doing that. So I think my role is different than I think some BIPOC people need to rest, like go Mm -hmm. rest. I need to rest too. Right. But I think it's like, you don't need to answer every question. (laughs) You don't even need to respond to the text or email. Like, Tune in to what you might need and rest um, because I think it can put the nervous system into a hypervigilant state if we're we're already responding to racism, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's happening. And then on top of that, all of 
um, because of the awakening, like white folks coming to say, can you answer this question for me? Can you do this thing for me? I want to center you on Instagram. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other level of trauma, I feel like, even though I feel like our voices need to be centered. So it's, I just think it's nuanced and, and we have agency. Let's decide how we want to be in this moment because the risk is that whiteness will co-opt this moment. And what I mean is like that, oh, I'm awake now. I'm going to feature Michelle on on my Instagram and see if she wants to do the IG takeover, which I've never done, nor do I know. But, you know, it's like <laughs> that's like happening a lot. And I'm like, oh, you're benefiting from that. Like the, yeah. the your page will benefit. But where were you? I've been doing this for for a long time. It's like, where were you a year ago? two years ago when the book came out, 10 years ago, right? When I was talking about this to rooms of like five people, right? Mm -hmm. When I was starting out as a yoga teacher. And so whiteness will do what it does, which is like take the thing, make it something else, sell Mm -hmm. it back to the people it's been stolen from, right? Mm -hmm. And I just think there is a risk. So I think we need to be discerning and how BIPOC folks need to be discerning and how they respond and whether or not they want to, like how we show up. We need to just be discerning about that. Yeah, I mean, for me, there's a there's a um, there's a feeling of of I suppose um, it's not it's not really flattery. (laughs) It's sort of like people people actually want to know what my experience is. They want to know. And that's not that's something that's novel. And it's highlighting for me how. I've pushed my own experience of blackness down subconsciously, consciously in order just to get by. And so there's a part of me that's like, wow, this could actually be really, you know, this could actually be really cathartic and transforming for me too. However, there is a part of me that is just, that is, as I said before, a little bit like uh, wanting to kind of give some disclaimers about the fact that, yeah, this is, (laughs) this is one experience um, and perhaps even wanting to point people in the direction of um, kind of where they really need to be and what they really need to be doing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, like, have you? I mean, what if I don't know, I guess like, the question is sort of <laughs> what would you recommend I do? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a... I mean, based on what you just said, yeah. to me, it sounds like you're noticing things that you pushed down. Mm. Um, and it's, it's funny. I'm thinking like, what would you tell a yoga student who's like not paying attention to what needs attention? Mm. And so what I'll say to you is I think pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. What needs attention, right? What's been pushed down? Why? what kind of care do you need around that? Like what you're noticing, what kind of resourcing and support do you need? And so I just, yeah, invite you into that exploration of like, there's a different kind of awakening happening for you in this moment based on what you just described. And I think that's what needs attention. And it's not easy to like notice the thing that, that has been pushed down or that we have not looked at or some of both, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's not easy. That's, it feels like the practice. It's not always easy for me to show up to the practice. And I mean, every part of the practice, because it inevitably means I'm going to be confronted with something as I'm like uncovering the layers of who I am. I'm going to be confronted with something that I didn't know. And it's probably going to make me feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. That's my experience of yoga. Yeah. 
if I'm I, like truly in the practice. I love that you highlighted that too in the book because um, I, ha- as I said, I've been having these conversations and I had this conversation with this group of teachers, white yoga teachers, and I said to them, look, what and 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 there was I could feel the spiritual bypassing. There was talk about love and you know all this stuff in space and and I didn't want to discount that as being really important. And that's something that you talk about in your book too, is this idea of you know kind of love. I didn't want to sort of railroad over that and say, well, yeah, 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 but but what I came to was, which is something I'm asking myself, is how am I contributing to the problem? Mm-hmm. And and it is a very uncomfortable question to ask yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important and I do think it's uncomfortable. And I also think another question is like, what 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 healing do you need based mm-hmm. on things being pushed down? Like, it's to me, this isn't like we can do both, right? We yeah. can know we're implicated and respond and also know we're like deeply traumatized because of these systems we're talking about mm-hmm. and both need attention. It's like, how do I heal as I'm looking at this question of how am I perpetuating the problem? And mm-hmm. I, I just feel like we, we need to be able to do both. Um, yeah. And, and like focus on, yeah, both of those things. Oh so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Resetting yourself and healing first, I think. Yeah. 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 Don't worry it, about all those, all those white folks. <laughs> I know. It feels like, um, given all of the, the tools and the principles that we have in yoga, man, I can't tell you how how lucky I feel to be to have yoga and all, and I mean like all of yoga, not just like the asana practice, like somewhere to escape on your mat, but just. All yeah. of this kind of philosophical underpinning about who we really are and, you know, what clouds that and all the rest of it. For me, that's been really useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder and I and I somehow feel a little bit like when we talk a little bit about how do we keep these conversations going? How do we keep, you know, how do we keep this out in front? I feel like as yoga teachers and even as a yoga community, we're sort of perfectly positioned to do that in some ways. And I wonder, I wondered what your thoughts are about what kinds of things that we can be talking about and, and highlighting in our, you know, discussions and in our, even in our classes that can, that can keep this out in front to some degree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I always invite people to notice um how the the culture and often I'll say the external for in a movement practice what is mm-hmm. happening outside of the room is affecting the or meditation is affecting you internally like how is how is what is playing out in real time yeah. showing up in your body how is your spe- how does your spirit feel I ask that question a lot mm-hmm. um, I ask about emotions right and thoughts and and I always say it sounds subtle to say, to bring in the external but it's not because people, I haven't been in many spaces where yoga teachers have invited me to pay attention to what is happening in the world and to bring that into my practice. I just haven't experienced it very much. And I think we are positioned as a yoga community to invite people into what is real, mm-hmm. what is happening. And that's one way that I do it. And and just centering like 
we're not escaping. We're having a collective experience, even though we're having a different experience of what is happening right now. But we are having a collective experience of this trauma. It's just landing in different ways. How is that landing for you? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, how is that showing up for you? And and I also am doing a lot of, I'm writing a second book about grief, collective grief. And so I'm thinking about grief all of the time, which I have for a long time. Yeah. Um, and I think at this moment, we can ask, because of the pandemic and because of the the uprising, I feel like it is so important to say, like, are you allowing yourself to grieve, right? Mm. Where do you feel grief in your body in response to what's happening? And that could mean, like, where I, I'm grieving because I'm implicated or I'm grieving because I lost someone, right? Like, it could mm-hmm. mean a lot of things, but I think just that, it's again, sounds subtle, and I don't think it is because it's mm-hmm. not often centered in in our yoga spaces, but I think we're highlighting like something's happening. We're losing something. We're losing people, right? We're shifting who we are. How does that feel for you? And so I'll just teach in that way. And I think there are many questions we can ask. Those are just a few that I, I offer to bring attention to, because I think if we don't process our grief, we're going to create more harm and suffering. I just Mm -hmm. know that's true. And that's why I'm, talking a lot about it and we're just having a a, the pandemic is is an experience of collective grief like Mm -hmm. layer upon layer for people because of all that's connected to people dying alone right people not Mm -hmm. seeing you know there's a lot there that we are going to have to as a culture like a a global culture community world have to respond to because psychologically that is doing something right it's it's and socially isolating is doing something for you know to the brain and the mind and the heart all the parts of who we are yeah i love that because i don't think people are processing it in that way and so because of that they're not necessarily looking for or reaching out to the tools that they actually need to process that and in so many ways to me that that feels ex- that feels a lot like um that feels a lot like the a lot of people's experience of racism like it's happening you're experiencing it, but you're not tuning into how that's feeling in your body, like how you're experiencing it. And then how, as a result, that is affecting the way that you're dealing with the world. And I really like that idea, you know, that just just bringing continually, br- continually bringing people's attention to it and mm-hmm. asking them the question and providing those and well, as doing our best to kind of provide those tools. And just as and yoga, yoga you know, can do that. Yeah. Yeah, we can feel it without having to fix it. I think mm-hmm. this urgency to fix it, I know I, I yeah. want to sort of have neat solutions. <laughs> yeah. You know, because you, you don't want to feel, we want to lean, we want immediately want to avoid the discomfort. And I think if we can teach people the tools to feel and then, I don't even want to say manage because that sounds it, but just tolerate the discomfort and the feelings, that's all we have to do. So that was very liberating, Michelle, what you said, because it, it's we're often scared of people's discomfort or of our own discomfort. And, and it's it's OK. We're giving them the tools to tolerate that and, and all will be well just but it won't be well if we ignore it and stuff it down. That's right. Yeah, I was talking with I was coaching someone earlier, uh, um, two yoga teachers, and I was talking about distress tolerance and like they're two white teachers and I was like, and they're working with some white folks. And I said, you need to teach them distress tolerance. Like white people are going to need to, um, and I was talking about fatigue with y'all earlier, learn mm-hmm. how to show up over and over for this conversation, for the feeling that's connected to it, for reckoning mm-hmm. with like being implicated in this and do that over and over and over. And I feel like 
um, build that resilience, right? That muscle of being with, which yoga teaches us to do mm. in so many ways, mm. right? In so many, not just the physical practice, but definitely the physical practice. Like yeah. stay here for five more breaths. Yeah. Why are we teaching students that? We're teaching distress tolerance in those moments. So we can do that with this moment too, right? With all that is being dismantled and what we're mantling, what we're creating. And um, I do think by feeling, because in large part, people have been conditioned to avoid their feelings that change will happen from that place. Like, but you, you know, we're, we're saying this, like if we don't ever feel, if we don't notice how we feel, feelings pile up and, mm -hmm. and dis-ease happens mm -hmm. and trauma happens and addiction happens. And I mean, so many things happen from that, violence happens from that place of not attending to our feelings. Um, both our, our joy and our grief, right? We need to pay attention to that. And I can't think of a better practice to help us pay attention to how we feel. You know, like yoga's it. It is. Definitely. Um, I had one little question about, so here's, here's, here's the little white girl speaking up, but when I talk, when I hear about the um, subject of cultural appropriation, is when I, I'm like, I can lean in and lean in and, and do everything. And then as soon as it's cultural appropriation, I feel like someone's gonna take my yoga away. And then I get like a little kid with their toy in the corner and I'm like, no, 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 don't take it away. Do I have, can't I keep yoga? Have I, have I, have I hurt somebody by taking it and by using it and by teaching it? And maybe I don't understand cultural appropriation enough did that, was that a question that you can understand? <laughs> yeah, I, um, I feel similarly um, because as far as I understand, yoga is not directly connected, as I'm practicing it, directly connected to my lineage. Mm. That's as I understand. There's a lot we don't know. Mm. Um, and so I think about writing a book about yoga with an ohm symbol on the front with words written in it, which I'm reflecting on a lot. And... Mm. Um, of course, words about the context and justice, but, and, and I'm profiting from that, right? And I'm profiting from something that actually is not in my lineage, it's not mine. And I also know that yoga is, is the sutras say, yoga is for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. So, so we're just in, we're dealing with contradictions. And, and also, I think, you know, folks who are directly connected to this lineage of yoga, as we understand it, have been made invisible, right? I, I don't know. I, I have maybe had one South Asian teacher as a mm -hmm. yoga teacher, mm -hmm. right? And so I think we're like colliding with that, what it means to be made invisible as this practice is like, boom, so many people practice yoga, right? Or call what they practice yoga. Yeah. And, and I think there's righteous anger about that. Um, and cultural appropriation happens it's not just in yoga. I learned about it in a dismantling racism training and it's where, where um, a person or group of people take something from a culture they don't have a relationship with. Mm -hmm. And so what I offer to well, myself and, and other people who are yoga practitioners but not directly connected to the lineage is that, you know, what is your relationship with this practice and with the people who are directly connected to it? Um, and how are you being reverent and honoring this practice and also being humble? And this is what I think about for myself. And it's yeah. why I name that I feel, 
I almost every time I show up to teach, I'm like, I don't know if I should be teaching, right? Mm -hmm. Like I have, and I think it's good for me to have that uneasiness and that, that um, discomfort because the moment that stops, I think I'm probably going to not be practicing my yoga, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to be profiting from something I'm calling yoga. So I want that, that um, uneasiness to be there because I really, it keeps me in check. I think as much as it can be, I think it keeps me in check and I want that. Um, and I don't think that this means people are going to take away your yoga or our yoga. I think people, <laughs> I think it's righteous anger and, you know, wanting to be made visible. Um, and it has a lot to do with capitalism, right? And how mm-hmm. it met the business of, of how it met yoga and then the business of yoga and, and what we call yoga. And it also is connected to something being taken away from source. Cultural appropriation is connected to that, right? Taking one part of something without fully understanding it, not that we could ever fully understand something that's so vast like yoga, right? Mm-hmm. But taking one thing and then what happens when you take something from source, from from its source, just one part of it, it gets distorted in a way. And, mm-hmm. and for sure that's happened um, probably all over the place related to yoga, but um, where I am, that's definitely happened. Um, and and as I said, people end up teaching things that I would not consider yoga. I say movement, like they're moving, and they're breathing, and they're concentrating. Mm. But if that's all that's happening, that's not the full path of yoga. Mm. It's true. Thank you. Yeah, I like that. I like that idea of that discomfort being a part of the yoga, mm-hmm. because it really, it really is. Um, as we as we kind of start to wrap up a little bit, a couple of things are coming or sort of coming out for me that um that I think, oh, I just want to ask about these things before we kind of finish. And one of the things is what I'm starting to hear a lot is people saying, um, even from people really close to me, is people saying, oh, I don't see color. And I wonder, like, I have a natural, uh, like, unease with that statement. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. And I wonder what is the response when it just doesn't feel right. And I wonder what it, what is the response to that, or what is a response to that? I mean, it depends on yeah. who you're talking to. Sure. I just think that's impossible, and I think that mm-hmm. is a spiritual bypass that shows up in yoga communities, right? And I think people are saying that because they absolutely see color, and they don't want to look at how they feel right. about being racialized and conditioned in particular if, if, and, and people of color have said this too, but I've Mm. in large part heard white people say, I don't see color. Yeah. Um, And that is because once white folks realize they're racialized and, and the hierarchy that we talked about, again, they, they realize I'm being treated in a very different way than people who are black indigenous or people of color. And so, So I just want to say that. And I, I would say that's not possible to someone. Mm. Or how is that possible? Like, I'm, mm-hmm. if I'm in the mood for a conversation, how is that possible? Mm. If I'm not, that, I might say that's not how I see it. The culture isn't set up for me to actually not see race. Yeah. Because everything I do is racialized. And what I say in trainings to white people and BIPOC folks, I say everything is racialized. And white people have been conditioned not to see themselves as racial beings. And they are. And so am I. And that's what we're mm-hmm. going to talk about. Right. So I think mm-hmm. it depends on the, the context and how much energy you want to give. Right. <laughs> or say, go look up spiritual bypassing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it depends on the relationship that you have yeah. with, 
And you don't have a responsibility to to say anything. I mean, I think you can like, again, figure out, do I want to put my energy here or somewhere else? To me, it feels like somebody, it feels like something's being taken away from me when people say that. Yes, because they're making you invisible. Yeah. Um, and so go ahead. Also be that they're what they're trying to do in a lame way that is not effective, but still they're trying to say, I don't want to feel disconnected from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want something between us. Now, the fact is tough nuts, sweetheart, but, but I think they're trying to seek connection with you. So it isn't always, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I get that people are yeah. they're trying to connect for sure. But I just but I had this sort of visceral feeling about it. And I've been thinking, where is that coming from? And is that a common experience of people of color to feel like, yeah. you know, hold on, that's not right. You right. Know? Um, yeah. and, and then the other one, the other thing that I was wondering about is I've been asked by a lot of people, uh, and I'm sure you've been hearing this a lot. People are now starting to think okay, now what do I do? How do I start to make a difference? But yet there's this fear of kind of tokenism or, to, you know, or do you know what I mean? Like, and, I, and I've, what seems to, what I mean, I, it seems to me that change has to happen. And so, yes, there is going to be, there are going to be moments moving forward where I start getting more invitations to do things and I look around and I'm the only black person in the room or, or whatever. And I'm trying to figure out how to feel about that and how to feel about saying yes to some of these things and kind of being that, you know, kind of being that change. Like, I feel like there's a couple of ways of responding to that, which is like a little bit outraged, like, Oh, well now you're asking me, but then there's another way that is a little bit more. And so I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about that, both for people of color and then and then also for for white folks who are who are scared because and because I feel like that fear is going to keep us in place, mm-hmm. who are scared to scared about tokenizing and all the rest of it. Mm. I mean, I think it's complex. And mm. as I said earlier, I think we need to folks who've been marginalized need to be centered. Right. And um what that might mean is that at times we may be um, tokenized, except I think we can decide what we need if that's mm-hmm. happening. So if, if I know like, oh, I'm going to be the only person or, or ask questions about why someone's asking me, what else do I want? Like, do I want them to center another person that's been marginalized, right? Another person of color or a trans person or a person with disability, right? Like, do I want that? Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, I, this came up for me. I was an ambassador for for Lululemon a long time ago for one of the local stores, uh-huh. and I had issues with like, do I want to represent? At that point, a bunch of stuff was happening with the company, and still things continue to happen. Mm. But we're in like a mess, and I really hadn't paid any attention to that. Like, I just didn't pay. I was not. I didn't buy their clothes right mm-hmm. before being approached about being an ambassador because they were too expensive for me. And um, I just hadn't paid attention. And I had this moment of like, I know I'm being tokenized Mm -hmm. and I want people to know in this community that black people practice yoga. Mm -hmm. And I want them to promote my classes and my teacher training. That's what happened, right? So when I say like, what do I want in exchange for being a token? Mm -hmm. But I know the institution's gonna benefit from my face up there more than I will, (laughs) right? You know, what is, yes. So I ask for things if I know I'm being tokenized. and I also think we don't have we don't have to be in every space. Again, it's like discernment. Like, do I want to be 
to be in this space or not. And, and I've been in a lot of spaces where I've been the only person of color. And I have at some point in these yoga spaces or trainings I've been in, because I'm a clinical social worker too, I've been like, does anyone else notice I'm the only person of color in this space? At some point that happens and I don't do it. It's not always the same point. It's based on what's happening in the room. Yeah. And I'm like, does anybody else see that I'm the only person here from this group? Like, mm-hmm. And we actually name that that's in the room, right? And then I'm going to have a different experience. So I, I've done that for a long time out of like, because I would feel in my body, like I have, no one's talking about this. Like no mm-hmm. one's racializing this. And I would feel like I have to say something about what's real in this moment. So mm-hmm. it would come from that place. Um, and then I think for, for white folks who are afraid of tokenizing, I would say, think about why you're asking a black indigenous or person of color now to be you know, a yoga teacher at your space or whatever is being asked, like, why now? Um, And are you willing to continue to do the work? Because I really only want to work with folks who are in a, who are hiring me to work with their studio um, or, or their community. I want to work or organization. I want to work with them um, and develop a relationship over time. I don't want to, um, do a three hour workshop and then that person feel like racism's done. Yeah. The risk, I know. Right? Like, that's the risk. So I think, you know, for, for white folks, think about your motivation, your intentions, why, why now? And what are you willing to do? Like, what is your commitment to this? Because it's not going to be easy work. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh. Michelle, thank you. I know you're busy. So thank you so, so much this has been so incredibly enlightening to me and, you know, and I'm, I'm sure it will be to the people who are listening to this too. So I just want to thank you for, you know, your willingness to come on and chat with us and for all of the work that you are doing in the world. You're an incredible, incredible example. And I'm just happy that you're out there doing what you do. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we'll put connections. So what's the best way for people to find out more? You talked about dismantling racism. Yeah. So my website is michellecjohnson.com and a um, ton of resources are listed there and my upcoming mm-hmm. events and ways to get in touch with me. And so, so that's a good way to see what's going on. And I'm on social media on Instagram at skill in action. Okay. It's another way to stay informed about what I'm thinking and what's, what's happening. So those are the ways for people to connect. And the website for the history of the race construct is dismantlingracism.org. Um, there, there are a ton of resources there for people. Yeah. If they want to start learning about the things we've talked about. A lot of resources there. And thanks for inviting me to be here. So much for coming. That was wonderful. Yeah. Take care. Yeah. You too. Y'all too. Yeah. All right. Bye. I have to tell you, I really loved that talk. I feel like it's one that I'll be listening to again and again because there was so much in it. Even observing my own struggle to articulate the feelings and experiences I've had. I have to tell you, as a person of color, this moment in our history has been so enlightening for me. It's given me some context to view the pain and the discomfort that I've lived as a person of color from as early as I can remember. And so it's also providing me with a space to heal. You know, Maria and I haven't been able to stop talking about this conversation since it happened. It's been the beginning of it's been the beginning of what we both consider to be a lifelong dialogue that we hope to continue between us and you. 
And so we decided to record a recent chat that we had talking about our reactions to this conversation with Michelle and how what we learned in conversation with her landed for us then and since then. And we're going to go ahead and get that episode out in the next few days as a companion to this one. So definitely watch for it. And if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to this podcast so that you'll be notified when our next episodes are coming. We've already got a couple more really juicy chats in the can that are going to be coming out pretty regularly over the weeks ahead. So thank you so much for listening and feel free to drop us a line if you want to share your thoughts about this or any other any other episode. But more than anything, take care of yourselves. Namaste.